Give your attention to the reading of God's word. John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. First John chapter 4. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We are here in the fifth week of Easter, and we are remembering the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ as he defeated death, as having defeated sin and Satan on the cross, mightily defeating death for the sake of his disciples and all those who would come in him. And we are now turning to another portion of scripture which John wrote in his gospel that has been chosen by the church for today in the calendar to remind us of what it is that Christ purchased for us. And in the resurrection, we see that we were dead branches and we've now been grafted in to the true vine. Just like last week, Jesus uses a parable. Last week, he used the parable of being the good shepherd, the true shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And he said, I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it up again. This is why the Father loves me. And we saw how his, his action as the good shepherd was a communication of love to these lost sheep. Peter said in his epistle, you were like sheep constantly straying, but now you have come to the bishop or the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is a, a homecoming, if you will, for these lost sheep as they are folded into this shepherd's uh, pen and, and after this, Jesus uses another parable in John 15 that he's the true vine. He is the vine that communicates life to his people. So John, as he writes both his gospel and epistle, therefore says that this vine, which is the source of love to his people, must that source of love must flow out into real fruit. If there is no fruit, then one is not in the vine. That is what John is saying in both of these passages. I want to look at three major ideas. First, the idea of Christ as the true vine, as John has written, why Jesus uses this parable, what he has to say about himself, some implications or some applications that we might be able to draw from it, I want to look at how the love of God was made manifest, as John writes in his epistle. And then finally, the commandment to love one another as a test, a, a rubric by which we can say we are either in Christ or we are not in Christ. It is not enough that we attend church. It is not enough that we surround ourselves with the things of Christianity if there is no reality in loving our brothers and, and our neighbors, then there is no reality in abiding in the root. And so this communion that Christ is offering to us must become fleshed out in our lives. That is the, that is the source of and the destination of the Christian walk. The love of Christ flows through us, to us, transforms us, and then must flow out to others in real fruit, really hear the fruit of love. 
not necessarily just the fruits of evangelism. Sometimes we read this passage and we just think, bear fruit and prove to be disciples. Okay, we're going we're gonna to get more disciples and that's how we're going to bear fruit. But both of these passages interpret and mirror one another. There's an abiding and this abiding paradigm, this idea of God coming and making a home in us as we are making our home in him and his word and his spirit abiding within us has to create room for other people. And so when you think of this, even as the season that we're in as a church, when we're thinking about lifting our vision towards the lost and lifting our vision out towards those who deeply need love, we have to remember where that comes from. It doesn't even come from our desire, but rather it comes from Christ's original intention to bring us into the love of the Father and for that Father's love to transform us and change how we orient ourselves to those around us and what we do for them. As the true vine, Christ is the only source of life for the disciples. There is no other thing which disciples need apart from Christ. It is not as if Christ has a word of faith or a spiritual word alone. Christ is the sum and substance of all of the life of a human being. We see this quite clearly in Scripture. God, in Genesis 2, forms the man out of the earth and breathes in him the breath of life. In John 1, John recognizes Christ, the Son of God, before his incarnation as the life of men. And so this life source, who is not an abstract force, but a person, has now come into the world and is gathering to himself disciples, and he's sharing his life into them. And so in him alone can we bear the fruits of love. In Christ alone can we actually make progress in fleshing out that original destiny for which we were called to be disciples. The Christian faith is not a call to accept Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven versus hell, period. That is included. That's a very important kernel. But part of the, the gospel is being transformed today. It is not just a fruit which we reap at the end of our days. It is a word which causes new life to come about today and cleanses us, and that word which cleanses transforms, as we'll see Jesus makes very clear in the third verse of chapter 15. Therefore, because God has so lavishly loved us, loved us because we have amazing source, uh, an amazing source of life which will never run out, which will never tire, which will never weaken, which will never diminish, both in its potency and effectiveness, because that love is so transforming, we can use our spiritual resource to love other people. What do I mean specifically? I mean that when you are offended by someone's actions, you can, in the grace of God, forgive that person and extend the forgiveness which you've received into forgiveness for others. Love makes room for others, is what I believe John is saying in these passages. And you cannot claim to have been accepted into God's home without opening the home of your heart towards neighbors who need them. I'm not just talking about hospitality, though I think that's clearly implied. Because true, God, true love comes from God alone, if we love our brothers, then we are truly Christ's disciples. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ or a Christian. 
And just to be clear, there are no differences between what a Christian is supposed to be and what a disciple is supposed to be. It is not as if you come to become a Christian and then become a disciple. All those who come to Jesus Christ are supposed to be disciples. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, his, the, the ones in the room with him that night, in the upper room in John 15, he's saying, this is how you prove that you are true disciples. You bear the fruit of faith, holiness, and love. And that, that love creates room for other people. So, as we saw last week with the Good Shepherd, Jesus uses parables in order that we would listen longer and listen deeper. Here is the normal way we truncate the Word of God. Jesus says, I am the true vine. If my words abide in you, you'll bear fruit. Okay, I need to read my Bible more. What, what we've just done is we've truncated this amazing imagery, and we haven't pressed it out or fleshed it out or thought about it, to get the insight that the word is supposed to produce, which is we're supposed to take what we know or what we learn from botanists or what we learn from gardeners about vines and about wine and about the cultivation of vineyards, and we're supposed to use it in order to think about how we will obey the word that Christ speaks. So when he says, I'm the true vine, we think, boy, I don't have a chapter in my systematics text on vines. And we chunk the word away. This is just John's gospel. It's just flowery language. It's just artistic language that is supposed to give you a feeling. No, it's supposed to cause you to meditate upon what does it mean for me as a Christian to abide in Christ? How do I abide in Christ? So abiding in Christ is not just some abstract idea. I just need to abide in Christ more. I just need to believe more or something like that. It actually has concrete ways that it's done. So you hear the phrase in the New Testament, walk by the Spirit. Okay, what does that mean? Do I get out my Spirit-finding stick and go off into the desert? No, it means to walk according to the Spirit's revealed will. And in this chapter... John 15 and 1 John 4, there is a very subtle and yet clear connection between the Word and the Spirit, which is we abide in the Spirit and we abide in the Word, and that is supposed to be the same thing. As Christians in America today, there is a very great temptation. I'm going to be just a Word person, or I'm going to be somebody really into worship and the Spirit and prayer, and those are not at all supposed to be divorced. They're supposed to be married together. John 15, verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I've watched a number of really good documentaries on the vineyards in France. And one of the tasks that they do every year is before winter comes, they deeply prune the plants. The reason for this is because it takes a lot of energy for the plants to sustain the branches. If those young vines are not cared for, they will die in the spring from just simple exhaustion. And it takes a very skilled person to cultivate wine. It is a tradition. Some of these vineyards that exist in France have records. They have receipts earlier than the Magna Carta. I want you to think about this. So, so for a thousand years, this 
this vineyard in France has existed and it's been passed down between the family generations and they have books in their property that have sales receipts from that long ago. The, the tradition and the skill and the excellence that these vineyard dressers have is not able to be transferred lightly. The way that they live in these chateaus, these homes, these houses, I don't think it's ironic that, that this is borne out in our, in our reality, is, is they, they teach from father to son or father to child these skills and it, the business is passed off. It is the way they live as a family. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Isn't this wise as a vineyard owner? If the branch is supported by sources of life, water, energy, nutrients from the soil, if that branch is not bearing fruit, then it is a functionally dead branch. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I want you to think about the action here. There is a pruning shear in someone's hand and there is a snip that takes place. There is a cutting and a removal of that which is not conducive to bearing fruit. So the father is the one who does this. We heard a a teaching just an hour ago about the father. This is telling us what the good, kind, gracious father does for the sake of his people. He removes branches that are death branches. He deeply prunes branches that are fruitful branches. So Jesus is saying that those who are false disciples of Christ, who never bear any fruit, are taken away from the root. They are taken away from the branch. But even those who do bear fruit are cut. And when you think about you are a branch, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Later he's going to say, you are the branches. It hurts being cut, being pruned. This is the kindness of the father. He cuts away what is dead in us. Judas, who bore only the fruit of greed and jealousy and idolatry, was being pruned away that very night. There's a difference between being pruned away forever and being pruned that you bear more fruit. I have this tree out front of my house. It's called a Bradford pear. It's a terrible type of tree. (laughs) The reason it's bad is because its branches are weak, and whenever a great storm comes by, the branches fall off. They destroy cars. They can injure people. They're also not very good in that they attract copious numbers of birds, which have their own problems. I was asking someone on the internet, what can I do to fix this tree? And they said, well, you can prune it. I would do it about two inches off the ground. (laughs) He was making a joke. And the reason why is because you don't prune a tree two inches off the ground if you want the tree to live. There's a difference between being pruned to bear more fruit and being taken away completely. Simon Peter and the other disciples that night had borne the fruit of faith and holiness. They had ministerial effectiveness, and yet they would all be deeply cut that night. And what the Lord was doing that night in telling them this beforehand was preparing them for, there are dead parts in you, Peter, and I have to take them out. 
It is grace from Christ that he allows the Father to cut away the deadness within us. I, I've used this imagery routinely, and I think it is powerful and effective. There is a time at which when gangrene is set in a limb to the point where it is the only gracious thing to do for the patient is to take the foot or to take the limb. That is what it takes. I'm, I'm friends with some people on the internet right now who are going through the terrible process of this young 22-year-old boy a young man who has a tumor in his lung and they have to take the lung. The reason why is because the tumor is very aggressive and anything less than that is not going to save the patient. When, when airplane pilots understand that the plane is going down, they do not come over the loudspeaker and say, well, listen, everyone, I'm sorry to do this. They, there is a catastrophe going on and it would be best if you get into your seats because we're going no they come over the loudspeakers and they say three words four words prepare for impact three words they come across the loudspeakers and they say prepare for impact the reason why is because you need a doctor or a pilot or someone who is involved in saving the life of the person you need them to be clear and you need to, them to be thorough. This is what Christ is saying about dead branches. Do not persist in being okay with a lack of fruit. If you do not bear fruit, you're taken away. It's a warning by Christ, but it's also gracious. Even though the disciples sin greatly this night by abandoning their master, by, by, by completely forsaking him in the most serious hour of need, Christ is a master physician. He's coming in and cutting away deadness so that there would be new life. One of the things that I've loved about spending a little bit of time with plants is you prune it this year and next year there are three branches in the place of one. It's this wonderful, for most, for most trees, most bushes, most plants, there is a spring of new life after a pruning. All discipline from the Lord seems at the time painful, but afterwards it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Jesus therefore assures his disciples of their cleanliness. In verse three, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. At this time in the upper room discourse, Judas had left. And so he's telling these disciples who he knows will all fall away. He says to them, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. The word of Christ, therefore, alone can cause us to bear fruit. But not only that, that word is thoroughly cleansing from all the corruption of pride and selfish ambition which plagues these disciples. He says to them, they are clean. And yet that night, most of them will run away in fear. Isn't this amazing how kind Christ is? He gives some assurance, even though their love is weak, it is real. And he assures them he's going to prune them and bring them back to greater fruitfulness. He is so desirous of their health that Christ speaks extremely clearly. Verse 4, therefore abide in me. He's giving a command, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
again, going back to this imagery of plants, there are certain plants, if you take a branch and you put it in a cup of water or in soil, it will bring out new roots. That's not true for most plants. If you take off a big giant branch and just stick it in the ground, it won't make it. Branches have to stay in the vine if they're going to bear fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When we hear this verse, we are often tempted to focus on, apart from me, you can do nothing. But I believe that Christ's words here are extremely pruning themselves. Just as he was pruning his disciples that night, so also his teaching is pruning away that which is dead in us, which is just like Peter. It's self-reliance. I can make it. I can be a good Christian. I can muster up the energy to persist myself. But Jesus would say, no, the branches are not supported by themselves. They're supported by the vine. Even gravity itself is upheld by the vine. The root takes care of holding up the branches. It not only provides nutrients and water and energy, it also takes away deadness and byproducts that have to be removed for fruit to be born. And it also upholds the branches to the place where they can receive light. This is what the trunk does. This is who Christ is for his people. Jesus, in his teaching, removes from us as a pruner, he removes from us every last ounce or strategy of self-reliance. Apart from Jesus Christ, I can do nothing. Jesus' words are like a sword, and he creates a division between that which is fruitful and good and that which has to be pruned away. And one of the things that has to be pruned away as we walk with the Lord as disciples is any form of self-reliance. I cannot make it on my own. You cannot make it on your own. It would be hopeless if we just stayed there. Jesus' word always has two edges to it, does it not? It always cuts away deadness, but it also cauterizes the wound or cleanses it in a way that there can be new life and new growth. He does not allow infection to come into the cut. He gives great hope in this verse. Look closely. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Do you see blessing and curse here? Promise and prohibition? Positive and negative commands? If we do not bear in Christ, bear If we do not abide in Christ, we cannot bear any fruit at all. And at the same time, if we really want to bear fruit, we're given the most clear, most helpful promise. We can bear much fruit, but we can't do it alone. We have to do it in Christ. Abiding in Christ, therefore, is the only strategy, the only way of life, the only way of thinking about your life to produce lifelong effectiveness for Christ. And by that, I do not just mean public ministry, but also how we walk in our, in our lives. Keep your heart, for from it spring forth the issues of life. If there's deadness in us, it will come out of us. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If that lamp is full of darkness, if your eye is full of darkness, great will your darkness be in your life. This is what I mean by abiding in Christ. I mean, I mean, keeping one's heart 
in the word of Christ, which he says cleanses us so that we can have spiritual resource, the capacity to forgive, grace flowing out of every dimension of our life. That's what I think Jesus is telling his disciples to do. Abide in him so that you would be rooted into the source of life. He warns those who would presume to be his disciples but have no desire to bear fruit. Again, by bearing fruit, I do not mean evangelism alone. I mean producing a change of character and a change of behavior, which is quite clear. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Those are descriptions of a life. Those aren't just descriptions of thoughts. Those, all of those things are expressed in how we relate to our fellow creatures. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it withers. Again, using the illustration, I have a giant branch off of that Bradford pear which fell down last year because a car hit it. And guess what? It's in my backyard and it has no leaves on it. And there are no buds. And it's ready. It's now dry. I couldn't burn it when it first fell down, but now it's ready to be burned. I'm probably going to make a little fire in my backyard. The point is this, the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Finally, Christ once again promises great and thrilling things for those who abide in him. He returns back to that which has cleansed the disciples. In verse 3, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And what were the words? They were the gospel. Jesus was putting forth the gospel to them. Verse 7 and 8, some of the greatest promises in this passage, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you see how trusting Christ is? He has just told some disciples who he has known for three years who at one time or another have had fights, fights so good or fights so big that the gospel writers record it for all time, uh, about who's the greatest disciple. It, it's like they pulled out their bank accounts and they're just like saying, well, I've got this amount of money in Jesus. How much money do you have in Jesus? It's, it's a flesh fest. It's absolute insanity. The one who had everything, who had all glory, who was receiving praise for all eternity, fellowshipping with the Father, uh, and then in the creation was receiving praise from before the foundations of the earth as the angels were singing after they were created. He set aside his glory to come and live as a servant. He was born into a stable, and his disciples are thinking about who's the greatest under this new rabbi. That's what they thought of Jesus. They, they did not apprehend by faith that the incarnate God was in front of them as they were arguing about which is the best follower. And Jesus then, later, before he goes to the cross, he gives them a promise like this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish. Now, I don't know about you, this sounds like handing the keys to an F-22 to a 14-year-old, right? It, this is insanity if it was based on human wisdom. Why does he trust them so much? 
Because if the word of Christ abides in you, you won't want things that will destroy you. You won't want things that are contrary to the will of God. That's why he can say, ask for whatever you wish. During the prayer meeting on Friday night, there were a few prayers about the, um, our, our city and asking God to make us fruitful in our city. Uh, brothers and sisters, I hope you are seeing the fruit of the transformation of God's word in your life where you've stopped asking for terrible things in prayer and you're asking for good things in prayer. I had this moment uh, in just reading, I was reading about um, just what the Lord has done in different cities in the earth and it popped into my head just this, this phrase, this title, New Geneva Pastors College, right? And this was something that I felt like the Lord was saying, there's a vision for the future. Maybe it's with GCF here, maybe not. But I just felt like, man, Lord, would you do it again? In the city of Geneva, they created, Calvin and his friends created what was called a company of pastors. These people who were leaving Rome, who had no ability to preach, literally the homilies were distributed. They were five-minute readings, pieces of paper that were copied around places. And now you've got a reformation in which the gospel needs to be heralded and proclaimed. So what did they do? They created a place where pastors could come and be trained. They could learn the word of Christ and then go out. I, I give that example not to say that I think I can make that happen, but oh, that God would create places where pastors could be trained with the gospel to go out into the nations and to transform and to restore and reform the churches, to deliver us from terrible fruitless teaching and bring us back to the word. And so I, I hope you are coming to the place as a disciple where you're seeing, wow, the things that I used to ask for no longer matter that much to me. I want souls. I want health in the church. I want health in my family. I want to exalt and honor Christ. That's why he can say, ask for whatever you wish, because he changes your wishes. That's, that's what he's saying. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Again, that's not just evangelism. It's the fruits of love, which include evangelism. So the words of Christ not only cleanse, but should remain as lifelong members of the inner home of the disciple. That's what it means to abide. Abiding is not coming into a hotel, staying a night, and leaving. Abiding is, I'm going to come into this house. There's going to be a room. It's my room, and I live there, and I dwell there, and I eat with the people who live there, and I have fellowship with the members of that home. That's what it means for Christ's word to abide in us. How do we know whether we abide in the word? It's whether or not his word finds a home in us or whether we're constantly kicking against the word. Whether or not when we hear a challenging word of rebuke, we can say, that's the clear word of God and I'm not aligned with it, but I'm going to repent in faith to obey it. That's what I believe the word means. His word is not something, therefore, that we despise. And when we hear harsh words, or words that seem harsh, rather, words that seem to cut, we remind ourselves we are in his care. The master physician knows what he's doing. He's a good doctor. He doesn't cut me unnecessarily. 
So as we are transformed by the Spirit, his word becomes the guiding principle, not just of our inner life, but everything in our life. Everything that is expressed in all of our days begins to be submitted to Christ. John, therefore, as he's writing not only the epistle, or not only the gospel, but also the epistle, desires that this sort of vision for life be expressed in the churches, and therefore he writes to them. He has a number of goals. One of them is to deliver them from false hope or false faith. John reminds them of the command of Christ in this passage to love our neighbors and love our brothers. He, com- he reminds them of a command by Christ or given by Christ, which is a test for the, the reality of the gospel. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's reasoning like this. It is impossible to come and touch the God who is love without being transformed into a loving person. It's very, very simple teaching, and it's very clear. John is not using confusing words here in his epistle. Love, therefore, is not an abstract feeling. Our world today defines love as the mutual toleration of any belief system or way of life or practice or habit. Love is not defined by culture. Just as with truth, love is defined by God alone. When, God says, when John says God is love, he does not mean that we should think that God is whatever we think love is. He's saying that God himself, in himself, is the pure definition of what love is. That which is loving is like God. Things that are not like God are not loving. God alone has the right to define what love is because our God is not just the creator of the physical world. He is not just the creator and sustainer of creatures and life. He is the one who defines what reality is. He is the God who is God over all metaphysics and God over all ideas. This is what John means when he says the word was with God. That Christ as the Logos is the source of all truth. He is truth himself. Jesus clearly taught that when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Those things which do not accord with Jesus Christ are not love or truth. God's love, therefore, is expressed in one concrete, uh, unambiguous way. It was expressed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ as he sent his son to atone for the sins of his people and to bring them to himself. Jesus comes to deliver us from that which destroys us, which is sin. Sin is not just going to be punished at the great judgment. It will be punished there. But sin has this way of destroying us now. Back at the ARC conference, uh, excuse me, Table Fellowship Conference, we had a time in which we were discussing Genesis 3. And there was a great debate in our little small group of just what it was, whose sin it was. Was it Eve's sin first or Adam's? Was Adam not there or was Adam just waiting around? 
Did Eve get deceived? And then she did get deceived, the New Testament tells us. And then go looking for Adam, or was he willing to just go for it right away? And all of this debate was swirling. And I just had to, I was the leader of the the group I was in. I just had to stop and say, you know what? I think this is actually teaching us something. Sin is so mysterious in all of its effects that we can't even rightly say what exactly happened in the fall. All we know is that from one seed of rebellion, a thousand flowers bloom instantly. They go from being naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. They go from harmony to a squabble when they're giving testimony. They go from living with God and loving God's presence to running away from God. This is what sin is. It destroys God's creatures. And therefore, God's love is rightly expressed as fury against that which destroys the one he loves. So, God's love was expressed in this, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest or clear or present among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, through the son. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What that means is that Jesus Christ's sacrifice has totally removed that which caused a great chasm or enmity between us and God, that is our sins. And our sins were taken away, the guilt of them, the sting of them were taken away from Christ by Christ's action. He does not just defeat death in the resurrection, he also removes that which causes us to be estranged from the Father. Because Christ has thoroughly atoned for our sins, we have complete peace with God, which is an immeasurably great inheritance. Drawing on that spiritual resource, therefore, the forgiveness and the the abiding reality that we have with Christ, we must imitate his manner and quality of love by extending grace to those around us. That's what we are supposed to do in the gospel. We're supposed to receive forgiveness. We're supposed to become at home with God and then turn that into love for those around us. Verse 11, beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You can think of it kind of like a waterfall. The love of God has been poured out upon us. It collects for a little while and then it must spill over. John's saying, if it never collects for a little while and spills over, then you're not in the waterfall. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John writes this epistle to strengthen the faith of the churches, but also to deliver them from any false hope. Those who are deluded by false faith or hypocritical faith, where there is no truth, there is only lies. The devil does not really consist of preoccupying you with evil things. There is a great wickedness of sin. However, the devil would be quite comfortable with the idea of you coming to church, but never really coming to Christ. He would be totally fine with that, especially if he can just keep you in that state forever. I think if the devil designed a city, he would have thousands of churches in the city where they never preach the gospel, and everyone involved thinks there's reality, but there's no real life, there's no real love, there's no truth. That's why John writes his epistle. He's writing to warn people who are asleep in churches, 
Paul says this in one of his epistles. He says, I'm not judging the world. It is those who are in the church that we are to judge. Christ gives his apostles words to wake up those who are sleepy in the church, who are deluded from, I think I have reality, but I know I, know I don't, or I don't know that I don't. He's wanting to wake up those who attend the things of Christ, but have no true communion with Jesus Christ. John's first epistle, therefore, becomes a guide by which we know we are truly disciples or not. Over and over again in John's epistle, he gives little tests by which we can know whether we have reality with Christ or not. John continues this theme of his epistle by describing or or picking up this theme of adoption and abiding in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. What did Jesus say in verse 3 of John 15? You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Later on, he says, abide in my word. John now says, the spirit abides in us. Not one or the other, both and. In fact, I like to think of it as two sides of the same coin. They always go together. The Spirit breathed out the Word of God. The Word of God shows us the, the, the uh, promises of God by which the Spirit is supplied. Paul told the Galatians, Does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing, presumably what? The Bible, the teaching of Christ, hearing with faith. And the answer is quite clear. God supplies the Holy Spirit to his people by hearing with faith. Abraham heard the promises of God, believed in them, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 14, we have seen, he and the apostles have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. What a wonderful promise that as a believing Christian, I know and can say that in my heart of hearts, I really do trust that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has come into the world, and I recognize my need for him. It is not enough to articulate that Jesus is the Messiah or that he went to the cross without that final idea. He's the Messiah that I needed. It has to come home. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Do you, see, do you see why I say it has to come home? Someone can say, I know that Jesus was a historical figure. That does not produce reality with Christ. I know that Jesus died on the cross. That still does not produce reality with Christ. What really is the fruit of reality with Christ is the understanding, not only did Jesus go to the cross, but I need him oh so much. He went to the cross for me, and without him, I could never come to know God. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The Trinitarian fellowship in, this, in these verses, into which, into which we've been adopted or, or invited into, is astonishing, and it should, from time to time, feel astonishing, hopefully increasingly every moment. This eternal, all-powerful, omniscient God has lavished grace upon wretched sinners, and beyond simply pardoning them, he comes to make his home in them 
and allow them to come home in his home. Isn't this amazing what God does? He doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He doesn't just give us a fresh start. You can do it again, Adam. He doesn't say that in the garden, does he? He gives a promise there's going to be a seed who will come and crush the serpent's head. But later, as the New Testament is being written and being written down by the apostles with clear teaching from Christ, he's saying it's so much more than just defeat of the evil one. God has come to live among his people. That great promise that we have at the end of Revelation that the lamb will be in the midst of the city, that God will dwell with man, that's happened. It's happening. So this love is supposed to transform our hearts and by that fruit of love, we have great clarity, great confidence of reality. We're delivered from all fear because the Almighty is present in our lives. Now, that does not mean from time to time we do not worry or doubt but rather that our lives are not dominated by fear. And increasingly, we should bear the fruit of faith, which is submitting anxieties to God. Because if the creator of everything, the one who has eternally existed, knows my name and lives in my life, then I can deal with someone not liking me because of Christ or stealing money from me because of sin or thinking that I'm not a very good person and having a problem with me. I can handle that because I have the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what I believe Christians are supposed to do. I can, I can reject returning evil for evil. Verse 17, By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. How is Christ right now? He is at the Father's right hand. Ephesians tells us we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. How is Jesus right now? He's glorified. He's receiving honor. Now, you and I are not receiving praise, and we will never receive praise. We will receive a commendation by the Lord, but that's not the same as the sort of glory that he receives. But how is Jesus? He is completely accepted in the Father. He is at the Father's side. We're at home with Christ. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. So the idea that I am struggling as a new believer with a question of, am I going to go to hell? Do I truly believe in Christ or is there false belief? I take these verses and I apply it to my life and I say, you know, I'm not perfected in love, but I can see there are sorts of fruit. There are tiny little, if you want, small crab apples and oh, that we would have one day golden delicious giant apples out of our lives. But there are little tiny signs of God's grace within me and this begins to deliver me from those sorts of fears. Fear has to do with punishment. And yet at the same time, if I look at my life and I say, I'm tolerating hating people or not forgiving them, then I have to say there's a great need for correction and repentance. John once again warns us of the utter impossibility, therefore, of having any reality with God if we hate our brothers. The first fruit of the Spirit which we must bear or produce is love. But notice it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of John Weiss. Insert your own name there. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. John's not mincing words here. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Basically, John is saying that it's easier to see, to love the things which you've seen. I saw a video yesterday of the president of North Korea shaking the hand of the president of South Korea. Brothers and sisters, if the presidents of two countries who've been at war for 70 years can come together just on a human bond of peace... Woe are we if we claim to know God and yet hate our brothers. How much more should we be indicted if that's the fruit of people who, by, all, by everything we know, clearly have nothing to do with Christ? If they can put on that sort of a human-level forgiveness, what are we supposed to be doing if we have all the love in the world that we need, if we have all the forgiveness that we could ever need in Christ? Ought we not to turn that around to radical forgiveness and love to our brothers. Verse 21, this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I want to ask two questions to be very concrete in application. Are there people in your life who you need to forgive? And the Holy Spirit will bring them to mind. Are there people in your life who you need to forgive And I would say this, that the hands which cling to the cross cannot simultaneously hold on to bitterness and resentment. If you have memories of things that people have wronged you with in the past, you have to forgive them. I would deeply encourage you to purchase a book from the new bookstore called Total Forgiveness Experience. It changed my life. It was a very powerful tool by the grace of God by which I was set free from a number of traumatic things that had happened to me and even non-traumatic things that didn't seem like a big deal, but in my heart of hearts, I was still holding on to them. Also, does anyone come to mind who you resent or whose memory is painful? If you can't think, oh, I need to forgive this person, maybe think about it like this. If you think about that person, do you try to not think about that person? That would be a very clear indication, just on a psychological level, there are issues there. I would tell you to remember the parable of the evil servant. What's the parable of the evil servant? A king forgives a man of a debt, pretty nominal debt, like a car, something, something small. He goes out and he grabs another servant who owes him, sorry, a king forgives a, a person of millions of dollars. And then he goes out and takes his other servant who owes him like 20 bucks or something and rings him and, and demands that he pays. The, the reason is, is this, that, that Christ taught that parable so that we would think about it. The sin that we've been forgiven against God is massive. And yet the sins which we hold on to between fellow brothers and sisters or even people in the world, they're very small compared to that. Christian maturity, therefore, is not simply acquiring knowledge. Most of this teaching, if you've been in the Lord for a while, there were, was no new information presented. There is a great danger of constantly wanting to know more without constantly wanting simultaneously to live more out. Christian maturity is growing in the depth and quality of our love and forgiveness for those who have sinned against us. I was, uh, I've been in many ministry situations in which the chief 
obstacle of that person growing in the Lord was a persistent unwillingness to forgive someone. In this way, by forgiving completely and totally, we imitate Christ. You see, you and I cannot go to the cross to atone for sins, but we can imitate not the root but the fruit of the cross, which is this, that just as we have received complete and total forgiveness, unqualified, granted to us before we apologized, we can take that same forgiveness and extend it to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, which is powerful to save. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the sort of perception and perspective in our lives, that we would be able to identify by your grace, by the prompting of your spirit, those places in our lives that we need to have pruned away from us. We pray that you would bring to mind people who we need to forgive and that today we would forgive them, not put it off for another day or when we have more time to think about it, but even right now that we would forgive to a greater quality, to a greater depth, those who have wronged us. We thank you so much that you have received us completely in Jesus Christ and that by a simple trust and belief in the clear promises of the gospel, we can have new life in you. We thank you for the work of your spirit in us. We pray, Lord, that you would identify to our minds, to our hearts, those areas in which we do not love rightly. And Lord, I pray that if there are those who think that they are being loved by God and yet have no love for their brothers and sisters, that you would do a miracle by your spirit, that you would bring new life in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.